Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they came to Northwest, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Career Services Assistant Director Travis Klein. And I'm Hannah Christian, the Director of Career Services here at Northwest. And today's guest on our show is me. I'm the Bearcat today. So <laughs> my name is Elissa Ford. I'm an associate professor of history in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences. I'm also the director of a minor that we have in public history and museum studies. And I'm also the director of the honors program. So I've got a lot of different caps that I wear. <laughs> well, welcome. Welcome. Yeah, we're very excited to have you here. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Travis, mm-hmm. have we had a history person? I don't think so. We've I geography, think you might be the we've first. Had, yeah, yeah. The departmental first people, professor. but not straight up history. So a failure, a grievous <laughs> error. I know. I'd stayed us four seasons to get here. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, first, uh, really, we're just looking for you to regale us with stories of how. First of all, when you went to college, did you know you wanted to be a professor? What was that journey like? And then, how did you get to Northwest? So I was not a history major in college at all. I took a couple history classes, but yeah, I've never actually taken like a U.S. survey overview class, actually. But I was um, an international, I majored in international studies with a focus on environmental development in dryland sub-Saharan Africa, and I had a double minor in music and African studies. I always thought it would be cool to have a PhD, like from high school, I thought that would be really neat because I wanted to be the person where if they were like, we need an expert, like get her on the phone. Like we need that expert. But I didn't like know what I wanted to be an expert in. I thought probably African stuff. But then my senior year in college, I realized that to do that work, I would either need to live in New York City or Washington, D.C., where like the big nonprofits and IGOs are based, or I would need to live in Africa. And I did not really want to live in any of those places. And so I then kind of had like a moment of crisis uh, senior year going, oh, my God, I'm going to graduate next semester. What do I do? And so I spent some time thinking about stuff that I liked and I liked history. In fact, there's like books on my shelf that are books that I got in like middle school and high school that I just like to read books about like women, like biographical books, like nonfiction, actual history books about women in the American West. Um, And I really liked museums. I did an internship at uh, the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame in Fort Worth, Texas, um, my senior year in college. And so I decided to go to graduate school for history um, with a focus on women in the American West and museum studies with a goal of working in a museum, which I then did not do. But that was kind of the the (laughs) process from like undergrad to like getting into like a track for grad school. So where did you graduate with your undergrad from? I'm from Texas, but I wanted to go far away from Texas for college. And I looked at schools all in the New England area. And well, almost all of them were in New England, some were in New York. But for someone from Texas, to me, that was New England. (laughs) No, it's not. And I went to college at a liberal arts school in Maine and then um, went to graduate school. I did my master's graduate certificate and my PhD at Arizona State. And so... You did your master's and then your PhD after that? Was it in the same program? How did you get from master's, right? I Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a common occurrence. Like you said, want to move forward in studying and researching, but don't exactly know 
how to get there or where, where you're going to go. Did that master's process help you decide then? Yeah. So I are, I had taken a year off between college and grad school. The college that I went to was like very intensive. And so I wanted to have a year, first of all, to like fully figure out what I wanted to do. Cause I wasn't kind of deciding on like museums and history until like January of my senior year. And that was too late to be applying for grad programs. So I, I took a year away from school, which was really important because um, I worked a lot of not fun retail jobs. And that made me more excited for grad school. And I would have just been really burnt out if I'd gone straight through. And then when I applied to grad schools, I applied um, just to master's programs. Now for history, it can actually be a little bit more difficult sometimes to find master's programs. They kind of fold it into a PhD. I don't love that approach, actually. To me, I wanted to make sure that I, well, I wanted to make sure I liked what I was doing. So I did the master's, but I also wanted to make sure like I could write a master's thesis, like a hundred pages before I needed to commit and write a dissertation for a PhD, which was, I mean, like, you can see a little bit back here, like that, like this is the size of the thesis and this is the size of the dissertation. And if I'd never written, I mean, I had to write a 40 page paper in undergrad, which was huge, but that's, I mean, a thesis is still double that and a dissertation's like quadruple that. So I wanted to make sure that like, I liked the area and that I could come up with the topic and then I could write a thesis before I did the PhD program. I ended up staying at Arizona State for my PhD as well. I didn't, I didn't intend to. I had applied to other places for my PhD and didn't get into some of them. And then other, and for all of them, even if I had gotten into some of the ones I was the most interested in, they were not schools that offered both public history. So kind of that museum area focus and the kind of U.S. women in the West focus. So I, at all of the schools, I would have had to have given up public history, which I didn't want to do. And so I decided to go ahead and stay at ASU to do the PhD program. And I actually decided that pretty late in the game that that's where I was going to stay. So that's where I ended up staying to do both. But because I actually made that decision, I did finish my PhD a lot faster than a lot of people do. Um, I did my coursework and my dissertation in just three years. So I had two years of coursework and then I did my entire dissertation in just one year. But I think there was something valuable about that too, because I did two years of the master's coursework and then two years of PhD coursework. When you do it together, it would have just been three years of coursework. And so I left that program having completed an additional year of classes than people who came in to do the combined degree, which meant like as someone who's doing public history now, like I had taken I think every single public history course, except for like one at ASU, I knew that material a lot better than other people. And I felt a lot more like qualified and comfortable to be teaching that kind of class or to be working in that environment. So I think there were, I guess when people are thinking about like, do I want to start with a master's or a PhD? There's like a real benefit, I think, towards doing that master's first, just to know that you can do it um, because the completion rate of a PhD is not great. Um, and so knowing that you can do that, I think it helps. For myself, my own experience, you know, I did a master's in a content area that I thought I would enjoy and it was awful and I hated it. And I, I'm so glad that I did that because I finished the master's degree and realized I did not want to do a PhD in that area. So like run away fast. I can't imagine being stuck in two years of coursework or something and thinking, boy, this is not for me. Yeah. So you talked about, you know, lots of retail jobs. What kind of experience did you gain, you know, having a year off and doing retail work? How did that, how has that benefited you? 
literally not at all. I got a really sweet deal at RAI and bought a lot of stuff before <laughs> I left because when you work there, you get a really good employee discount. No, what? where did I even work? Oh, I learned a lot about birds. I worked at like a bird store, not like outdoor feeding of birds. Um, So like, I mean, I guess there's like stuff I learned, but not, I mean, no, it was just so that I would have, I moved to a different city and I lived with a friend from college. So it was just like, I mean, I worked 14 days in a row without getting a day off. It was horrible and barely had enough money. But I think that it was just good to have time. Oh, wait, because again, even though that wasn't good, it was, I wouldn't have enjoyed grad school if I'd gone straight into it. Like I really needed some time away from it. So that part was good. And I guess I got to live in a city that I didn't, you know, whatever. It was not good. (laughs) No benefit. Students always ask me, or I hear a lot of students say, I should go straight into a master's degree because I will not be able to go back to school if I quit now. What advice would you give for that? No, because the job you get first out of college is going to be kind of not great. And that's not saying you're not like prepared to do things after college, like, but you're not that. I mean, you like, right. It's your first job. It's not going to be the most amazing job ever. And if it is the most amazing job ever, then that's cool. It means maybe you don't need to go to a master's program right now. But I mean, like my dad said the same thing. He went back to school and he got his master's degree when I was in grad school and like he'd been doing construction before that. And so like other people in his grad program were like, oh, God, I have to like do this work. And it's hard. And he's like, what? I'm like sitting here in air conditioning and like drinking a beer at 10 o'clock at night. Like <laughs> I was working outside in 105 degree heat and like falling off a roof like last year. Like this is good. I think having some of that work experience can be like it helps put into perspective, like what you want to do. And if you go off and you're happy doing it, it doesn't, you don't have to go back and go to grad school. For me, like, I mean, and I'd applied to like 70, like real jobs. I did not get any of them. I got one interview on the phone and that was it. And that was incredibly disheartening because I went to a really good school and I had a like really good grades and none of that actually really mattered. And what really mattered was like connections for the types of things I had. And I was from a rural poor family in Texas, not on the East Coast, and I had no connection. So that I think was a more like disheartening welcome to the world. So how did you get into teaching then? Is that what kind of prompted the switch from, you know, the original career path, the goal to coming into academia? No. So as I said, I wanted to work in a museum. So I wanted to be a museum curator. And then in graduate school, I did not teach. Um, I worked on grants and other projects. um, But my very last semester, outside of my GA position on campus, I also had a job at the Arizona Jewish Historical Society for like 10 hours a week. And then I also had a job and I got a job at a community college in the Phoenix area to they were looking for someone to teach women's history. And I thought, well, I'll try teaching. I didn't want the the position at ASU was not very appealing as a GA because you taught two sections, a hundred students each of like the survey. And I thought, Oh my God, that sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) Um, I would hate teaching and like everyone hated it their first semester. Um, But so instead I thought, okay, I'll teach it the class I like. Right. So area of women's history, like 15 students, that sounds like a good introduction to it. And I liked it fine. It's not like I necessarily was like, this is what I'm going to do now. But like, I liked it. And I was, I felt good enough at it. And then after I graduated with my PhD, I had, so well, actually, I guess I graduated while I was there. 
the year after, when I left Arizona, I had a Fulbright um, to Romania for a year. And it was technically an English teaching award. But in my application, I had written like, oh, hey, I'll have my PhD by then. So like, I could also teach like, history things. And when I got that position, they actually didn't have me teach any English at all. I taught whatever I wanted to teach. I taught an oral history class. And I taught a public history class. And so again, I like had more teaching experience. And then when I was in Romania, I was applying for jobs for when I got back and I applied to museum jobs and I applied to like academic positions and I did not get any interviews for museum jobs and I get got inter- interviews for um, academic positions. So it's sort of just like that, even though like as a historian, a job in e- academia is incredibly hard to get. I just like kept getting those jobs <laughs> as opposed to the museum ones which was fine. So how did you find, or how did you get to Northwest? There were six job openings for which I was qualified. (laughs) Welcome to the world of a historian. (laughs) So that year there were six job openings. I applied for those six. Some of them were a stretch, like Cornell University was looking for a labor historian, which I do work on like cowboys, cowgirls, that technically is a form of labor. That is not what Cornell meant by a labor historian. (laughs) I knew that, Um, but I made the argument. Shockingly, I did not get that job. (laughs) So uh, Northwest is the place that I got a job. So I mean, I mean, that's like kind of that's like the reality for most like academics, right? Like there were six jobs. I applied for all of them. I got this one. And uh, you know, the thing that people don't understand, and by people, I mean, non-academics, right? Yeah. How, why would you go into a PhD program for which there are four openings in the entire country that you're qualified to teach? Yeah. So I will say that I think most people don't really realize that when they're starting a PhD program. And again, I wasn't like thinking about academic jobs necessarily, but I I mean, I don't think people really realize how difficult it is. Um, But I also think like, even if you get another job, you still got to spend like five years. Like it didn't cost me, I think I spent a thousand dollars, like my first semester on like the cost of my grad school program, but otherwise I was paid to do it. I got paid to live in Arizona, spend five years, like reading books. Like, I'm okay with that. (laughs) You know, like that's (laughs) what I, that's what I was doing for free beforehand. And now I'm getting paid to do it as a grad student. But I mean, I, I think there are people who also go into it and don't realize what it will then take to get a job. Like there are some people in my grad program who are like, oh, well, I am only going to look for a job in like these two states. And it's like, well, good luck to that. And there are two jobs that I could have applied for um, the year I got this job and that I chose not to. One was, I think, North Dakota State because I knew I would die there because it's too (laughs) cold. And then another was a, a place that was too religious that I was not interested in participating in but everywhere else like it didn't really matter where it was or what it was I was going to apply for it and that being said I mean I got the job at Northwest for a reason because like they like said we want someone who does this and this and this and this and this and I was like cool I do all of those things so like I actually fit what the school was looking for instead of having to make like a stretch and try to like get people in New York State to believe that a labor labor, can also be a cowboy yeah So, and you mentioned the cowboy thing a few times. You actually you have a book that's come out about cowboy. Yeah, so look, you're ready to go. Awesome. You mean this book, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I had uh, it took me far too long, I think, to finish my book. It's the same. I mean, there've been changes in like chapters and what's been included in it from my master's to my dissertation thesis to dissertation to book. 
Um, but this like started um, out of my master's thesis project in my book, Rodeo's Refuge, Rodeo's Rebellion, Gender, Race and Identity in the American Rodeo came out in November of 2020. And so it looks at five different race and group specific rodeos in the United States. So there's a several black rodeo circuits. There's um, several Native American rodeo circuits. Um, there's a gay rodeo circuit, the Chariata, which is Mexican rodeo that also takes place in the United States. And then there's rodeo in Hawaii. So I looked at those and then I have just finished my second book manuscript. We're making our final edits too, hopefully, that we're hoping will be out next fall, actually. So fall of 2023. And that one looks specifically at gay rodeo. Have you always been interested in rodeo? Like, so you said um, women in the American West, uh, I mean, growing up in Texas, one can assume, but it's legally required that you like rodeo yeah. if you live in yeah, Texas. Yeah, right, right. right. Has that always been a part, passion? It's part of the Texas pledge. Um, I was just talking about this in classes yesterday. Barbecue yeah. and rodeo, right? <laughs> Barbecue, rodeo. Yeah, they're all included. Yeah, because we have a pledge in Texas. Like, so you say the U.S. pledge and then you have to say the Texas pledge um, in elementary school and high school, all the things. Uh, no. So, I mean, obviously I'd known about rodeo. I'd known about like ranching stuff and I knew there were different like rodeo circuits. But when I did my internship at the Cowgirl Museum, that's when I got a little bit more. Uh, that's what sparked my interest in looking at non-white women in rodeo um, that weren't really well documented or well represented um, in institutions at that time. And so that's where... I mean, I think I felt like this kind of personal connection just from growing up in Texas. I'd only been to one rodeo growing up. So like, that's not a thing I did or my family did. But, and then doing that, that internship, and that was just an hour and a half away from my hometown. So it's right in the area where I'm from. And I wasn't set on doing that as my topic in grad school. I just, I, I played around with a number of different ideas and then kind of settled on that one. And then I've just kind of expanded and included like different rodeo circuits as I found them. Like, I mean, I didn't know there was rodeo in Hawaii when I started. And I didn't know about the chariata. I didn't know about gay rodeo when I started. So those are like different components that have been kind of expanded over time. And you also, there are a few museums on campus that you also are kind of the person who's in charge of organizing, right? Yeah, I'd say like right now, really Jessica Vest in the archives is doing a lot more of that than me um, since she's kind of running the interns that are working over there now. But yeah, we've like worked to get the kind of the museums together a little bit more as a as a consortium have some opening hours for them. We've had we've got a student worker position for them that ha that has been able to actually go through and like catalog all of the objects and like there's tour like there's tours that are available for all of them that are written down like tour scripts. We've got educational materials, so there's a lot of things that are there that did not exist several years ago, which is really really awesome. Um, I'm also the president of the Nottoway County Historical Society, which is the museum here in Maryville. And so I do things there, but then I also have, not just because I'm the president, but that my classes do stuff there. They did stuff before, but I've got my public history museum studies classes do a lot of projects at the museum as well. So you may not work at a museum, but you're still getting to work with them at least. So Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I mean, the value of the, you know, public history museum studies. So like I still do some research and like have published in that area and then still do museum work and I'm training students to do museum work also. So, and, and then again, yeah, do some of that myself just in the other roles over there. 
I know you've talked a lot about public history and museums, et cetera, but I'm sure public history encompasses more than just museum work. Can you get kind of give us an overview of what public history actually is? I think the broadest definition you can do is history outside of academia, right? So any of the other places in which one can do history or participate in history. So some of like the fields that can fall under the category of public history can be like museums, archives. So like there's things in a library, historic preservation, right? Saving old buildings, local community history, oral histories, talking to people and gathering their stories. And those areas, like you don't always have to be like a historian to work in those areas like that under this field, but like a lot of museum studies programs are in anthropology, right? So, or like art history. So you could have like museum is here under this umbrella, but it can also be here under this umbrella. Same with historic preservation. You're going to have like architects and historians and an array, like city planners, an array of different people that like come together and are working in that area. So like public history can be also a lot more, um, well, obviously it's more collaborative because you're often doing things with the public and for the public, but also more collaborative and like interdisciplinary in terms of like the other sorts of like professionals that you're working with. And so that's a really good thing for students because I mean, a lot of people like history, but then they are not sure, like, what can I do with that, right, as a job? And, or, like, I don't want to teach. So, like, what else can I do with that as a job? And so um, having that minor in public history and museum studies is really valuable because it shows here are these other things that you can do. And we also give you, like, actually hands-on experience and the training that you need either to get like an entry-level position or really be well prepared for grad school because most of those jobs you'll need a a master's degree for. That's what I was going to ask like some of your uh, some of your graduates who had this minor like can you give us an example of some of the jobs that they've had? Yeah so uh, there was someone who was a curator out at the Amelia Earhart Museum who is that same person who's now in Kentucky at the archives there they're like people who are at the World War One Museum. So like an array of different types of places, um, but all of them have masters. So hmm. it's something where you really need to, to go on and do a master's degree um, to get more than just like an entry level type of position. Yeah. And so we've got a lot of students that go on to do that kind of that kind of graduate program. I mean, of course, we always say in history, like it doesn't just prepare you for a job like as a historian. Because if you look at most job ads, like, or if you look at most jobs that exist, like, there's not a major, like, that job does not have this major, you need skills. And most employers are looking for people with soft skills, especially now where you have the ability to communicate orally and written, um, and to think critically. And I would argue that history checks all those boxes, right? Yeah, anything (laughs) within the humanities, and I would say specifically history does that. So it's really good training for any type of job. Um, And then just being able to understand how to translate like what you're learning in a classroom and how to make that look appealing for employers. Like if you want an insurance agent, like there's no major to be an insurance agent. We've got people who are insurance agents and they were history majors and public history minors, but you don't have to like major in business to do that. Like I always tell people like, major in the thing that you like, because if you don't like it, you're, you're not going to finish the degree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need to like it. And then you're going to be able to figure out a job with it. Like the, the job parts, it'll happen. 
I mean, sometimes, right. If you're going to be a nurse, like you need to major in nursing, like don't major in history. That's a poor decision. But if you want to go to medical school, actually, I would strongly recommend majoring in history because medical schools love people who are not science majors. Obviously you have to have taken the prereqs and stuff, but they like people who come from other areas that will really give you a leg up and something in, in med school applications or backgrounds that people don't think of as opportunities for them. I'm responsible for collecting the placement data. And I was surprised the first several times I did that, the variety of majors that, you know, went to med school or even went to law school. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, to go back to the discussion about grad school, you know, you don't have to go right out of college and you don't have to go in the discipline that you got your undergrad degree in. Sometimes those decisions you know, you, you learn and grow as you go through college. And sometimes those decisions will take you on a different path. Yeah. And I mean, even like, if you want to go to med school, there are classes you do have to take to get into med school. So you can do those in addition to your degree, or if you change your mind later, you're always able to do those classes that you need to take. But I think I had a point, but I don't remember what it is anymore. <laughs> but it was I was, think, I was thinking, yeah. Travis, see, Travis didn't have any business background, but he could no. take that nine credit hour business primer course, yeah. right, to, to go to the MBA. You just have to take all those prereqs mm-hmm. up front to be able to be prepared. Yeah. Well, oh, actually, one thing I was going to say is, I mean, some grad programs don't want you to come in right after undergrad. Like, I remember I was looking at some geography programs and they didn't want you right after undergrad they wanted you to have worked for a few years their average age of starting was like 25 and so like they like explicitly said on their website like we don't want you like go work some and then come back not necessarily that they were looking for like relevant like it had to be relevant work experience but yeah i mean that can make you more appealing or sometimes more likely to get funding in grad school. Like if you do have some related experience, then maybe they're going to hire you as a GA to do that work versus the person who come in, came in straight from undergrad that's not going to get hired as a GA and then has to pay for that grad program. Did you know about the graduate assistantships when you were looking for master's programs? Like were you already aware of that? How did you find out about the positions? I did not know that like there would be like GA positions that were outside your department. I only knew that about like things within the department. Um, and I didn't know anyone who had one outside a department versus like at Northwest, like most people who are GAs are GAs outside of their area of study. But since I was at a school that also had a PhD, those are R1 schools. And as an R1 school, they usually have enough positions where you're hired within your own department. So I guess like we did have a computer science person who was a GA in our department because of project grant that someone had. They had a couple computer science people who got paid more than us, but whatever. <laughs> not, not better. No, I just knew, like, I mean, you didn't know, like, one was guaranteed by doing public history. I knew it was more likely for me to get funding at the school that I went to. And I wouldn't have been able to go to a school without funding. I mean, I will say what someone always told me is only an idiot is going to pay for like a graduate program, especially a PhD in the humanities, because you're not going to make the money, right? Like that some other fields are, and that's just a reality. Like, and if you're going to go in and get a PhD in history and think you're going to make the big bucks, like that's a poor decision. If you care about money, that's not what you should be doing. I mean, people do that because they care about that topic. That doesn't mean maybe they shouldn't be paid more, but like, you're not doing it for the money. But like, I mean, it is not really, it would not be a wise choice to go in and pay for a PhD 
in the humanities out of pocket because you're not going to make the kind of money that you are with a law degree or a medical school degree where you are paying for that out of pocket because then you're finishing and making six figures and you're not maybe ever going to be making six figures as a historian. So I, I mean, sometimes you do have to find that balance um, between doing something you like versus like, does this make sense to do? Um, and I think unfortunately grad programs in history for a while were perfectly willing to like admit more people than there were jobs um, and admit more people than they had funding to support. I think they've gotten better about that in the last 10 years. Like at Arizona State, they really downsized their PhD program because they decided it wasn't really that ethical to have 30 people in a program when then there's only six jobs. That doesn't really make sense to do. You also mentioned the honors program. Do you want to talk about how honors works at Northwest and what students kind of get out of the program? Yeah, so uh, the honors program, they need a 3.5 GPA. We recommend a 3.75 GPA. Um, that's for 2023 admission. And I don't guarantee that those admission standards are the ones that would be um, the same moving forward if this is being listened to at a later date. But uh, and students can apply coming in to their first year. Students can also join once they're here. For the honors program, they complete four honors classes. They're not additional classes. They are existing classes that are part of the Northwest Core um, Gen Ed program. And what's really great about those classes is that they're capped at 20 to 25 students. So instead of an 80-person Gen Psych class, you get to take a class with 20 to 25 students. Um, and that also means that as faculty members, we're able to do really different things in those classes. One, because hopefully it means you're more like excited and engaged if you're an honor student. But two, like 80 students, I can really just lecture to. But if I've got 20 to 25 and they're thinking like, yay, learning, um, we get to do different things. What I think are more fun things, more engaging things, more discussion based things in those classes. So you do four of those classes. Um, and then you also complete three experiences. And there's a, a variety of things that can count as those experiences, everything from internships to study abroad, to research projects, to different trainings that are available on campus. And that's what students work on completing over the four years that they're here, um, or however long they're here. But that's over the course of their time at Northwest, as opposed to like each year you have to do those things. We have like some, some other benefits. We have some scholarships available, not for incoming freshmen. If someone would like to donate a lot of money to us, I would love to do that so we could have scholarships for incoming freshmen. But we do have money that uh, last year we gave out about $2,000 to help honor students study abroad. We gave out about $1,000 to help students do internships. And so like in their applications, they talked about using that for like professional clothes to wear or being able to drive back and forth to their internships. Um, we've used that money to help students go to conferences, do research. So there's a lot of kind of other support areas. We also offer some different monthly programming. Some is like fun social stuff. We did pumpkin painting uh, last month. But we also have a popcorn with a prof event each month where we invite a faculty member to come in and talk about like grad school, their research, all kind of, I guess, the stuff I've been talking about here. But that kind of thing, which is really I think helpful and important for honor students who are thinking about going to graduate school. And so we've got people from like different areas and different fields that have come in to do that. So you get a lot of different kind of opportunities to talk with faculty members in maybe ways that you aren't otherwise doing just in like a classroom setting. You've done an amazing job of talking about grad school and I know we're called career services, but we also help will help students with personal statements or statements of intent or any application documents to graduate school. 
But I think a lot of students don't realize that these resources are available if they're not in the honors program, right? And they maybe they're in just a regular degree track as a regular student, and it's really difficult to find graduate school resources. Do you have maybe some nuggets, some advice, maybe some uh, some clips, wisdom that you could share with those undergraduate students about that process of pursuing graduate work? So I think you have to talk to your advisor or, and I don't mean like your academic advisor, your freshman year, I mean, your faculty academic advisor or a faculty member who you like, like maybe if you don't really click with your faculty advisor, whatever, you you need to talk with a faculty member that's in the field that you want to do because every area is different in terms of what they're looking for and how to prepare for that. And where good grad programs are. So I have a Canvas site that's for my public history museum studies minors. And on there, I've got a page that has like, okay, grad programs, like if you're interested in museum stuff, here's a couple lists to start with if you're interested in archives, if you're interested in like archaeology, if you're interested in conservation, like all these different areas. And so, but I mean, someone who's not from those fields is going to have zero idea like where to get started with that um so I mean even like the other people in the history program are not going to be helpful to them in the same way if I have a student that's coming in and saying like oh I'm really interested in doing grad school and like German like history of Germany and like the holocaust like they need to go talk with someone else because that is not I cannot help you with that because I don't know what the current good programs are. But if they really enjoyed your class, they could talk to you and you could refer them to the faculty member who would have that information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like if, I mean, they can ask me and I'll say, I cannot help you, but you need to go, (laughs) that's what, right. I said, you need to go talk to this person Mm -hmm. because I mean, I just don't know. I'd be Googling the same way that they would. (laughs) That we Um, would, yeah. And I think We do it a lot, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that maybe students don't realize is that for grad programs, they're very, very specific. And so you really, like, not everyone is, like, yes, go talk to a historian, but not all historians can help you with the thing that you're interested in. The other thing that you really have to do, especially if you're applying to a PhD program. Again, I don't know, do not know if this is true of all fields. It is certainly true of history. You need to reach out to the people at the program you're interested in working in. So like you need masters, it's less important, but for a PhD program, if the faculty member who does whatever history of the Holocaust is not interested in working with you, you are not going to be admitted to that program, period. It doesn't matter how awesome you are. If they are not interested in working with you, you will not be admitted. Um, And they're going to be a lot more interested in working with you if you have reached out to them and contacted them about why you're interested in working with them. Because then usually the way it works at some of these bigger programs is like, oh, that person gets to kind of select, you know, maybe two people who are going to be in that area that are coming in. So if you get to be, if there's five people who are interested in doing that and these four have reached out and sound interesting. You know, these four have reached out. They're already ahead of this person. This person didn't seem so interesting, but that these three do, then that's giving you a much better shot. I mean, that's almost required for admission into like a history PhD program. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I just want to reiterate, I tell students that all the time because you're right, Every in every discipline, every very specific you could use you, you used uh, history of the Holocaust as an example, but there could be 
history of the Holocaust in North Germany, history of the Holocaust in, you know, like, I mean, it's so specific. I'm just, I'm echoing that as I'm thinking through it. Um, but we will wrap up <laughs> this interview because it is Friday and it's the end, nearing the end of the semester and we're all labor history here. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we're all weary. We're weary and world-worn. So thank you so much for being our guest. We really appreciate that. You had an amazing, amazing examples that we don't often hear in the background of the, you know, grad schools and stuff like that. So thank you. Take it away, Travis. That will do it for another episode of Behind the Bearcat. And we'll talk to you next time. Mm